Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There were three ravens sat on a tree. Down a down, hey down a down. They were as black as they might be with a down. One of them said to his mate, Where shall we our breakfast take? With a down, dairy, 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 down, down. Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of the Three Ravens podcast. We're on a break at the moment, researching and writing our second series, which will launch in July. To fill the gap, this is one of three little compilation episodes containing three stories from our first series. We've entitled this episode Three Witches because it contains three of our witch tales, including our Kent story, the Queen of Bones, our Somerset story, the Restless Witch of Sand Hill, and our Nottinghamshire story, The Blidworth Witch. If you're interested in bonus content and would like to access all of our episodes completely ad-free, then do consider signing up to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast. And for our archive of all past episodes and expanded information for each episode, please visit our website at threeravenspodcast.com. Many moons ago, when blessed Julian of Norwich was old and I was young, a queen came to Leeds Castle, a queen who could talk to spirits and raise the dead. She was French, of course, which Roger the Steward said went just to show, and what more did you need, really, and it was only a surprise she hadn't been found out before now. It was a lot of horse manure, said the cobbler, who came to the castle to mend our shoes. It was money, that was all. Money is the only magic of our age. King Henry wants money for his wars, and the Dowager Queen has got it. There were those who agreed with him, and those who did not. But I was as green as grass back then, and my ears pricked up like a spaniel's at the slightest hint of a juicy tale or a slice of gossip. I won't say I've changed my coat too much where the gossip is concerned, so if you can stand me a cup of ale one winter's night, I'll tell you a thing or two. But the tall tales... I've learned to take with a sprinkling of salt. The rumours travelled between us like spreading fire as we went about our daily work in the castle, and everybody was stopping to chatter much more than usual, leaning on brooms and letting pots boil over. His Majesty King Henry had arrested the Dowager Queen for treasonous necromancy. She plotted and schemed for his death and destruction. Objects have been found in her private chambers, said Mary, idling over the cheese curds. Bottles of potions from the Witch of Eye and strange charts reading messages in the stars. She could raise up dead corpses from their graves, Alice told me as we were washing the floor, and charm both fiends and fairies to do her bidding. When I went out to collect herbs, John the gardener told me that she was as crooked as they came and that she accepted bribes and was greedy and stingy, hoarding all the money for herself. Even her late husband, King Henry IV, had been kept on an allowance. And when we gathered around the kitchen hearth in the evenings, Roger the steward told us about her wicked father, Charles the Bad. Now, when you're young and impressionable, you don't need much more than a name to form your opinions, and Charles the Bad was fairly conclusive. He'd been a murderer many times over, preferring to hang his victims upside down in chains and slowly behead them. He'd been in league with the devil, so whenever the people of France had caught him and tried to lock him away, he changed himself into air and slipped away undetected. 
But the wager he'd made with the devil for power and influence took its toll on Charles the Bad. In return, the devil was slowly eating away at his limbs, decaying them one at a time. The ends of his fingers were black and rotten, and every time he spoke, a stink came forth from his foul and broken teeth. Terrified of death, Charles the Bad sought the help of all the doctors in the land, but none had an answer for him, until one day the devil came to him in disguise as a doctor and advised him to have himself sewn up in a bedsheet soaked with the finest brandy to preserve his flesh. Well, Charles lay down and they wrapped him up in yards of the best linen and doused him with gallons of expensive liquor. But then the devil changed himself into a seamstress and appeared to help stitch him into the sheet. And when nobody was watching, the devil tipped a candle over and there was Charles the Bad gone to hell in a blaze of fire with no chance to pray. We can only assume, said Roger the Steward, that the devil had a fine old time feasting on his soul, drowned in all that delicious brandy. Somebody else piped up that they'd heard Charles the Bad had been a necromancer too, and a poisoner, and all sorts of other things. The Dowager Queen was just the same, like father, like daughter. Well, by the time she actually arrived, we were all good and terrified, and nobody wanted to be the one to serve her alone in her chambers, so we drew straws for it. Marjorie got the short straw, and I thanked all the blessed saints it wasn't me. The Queen was tiny and pretty, with a round face and a high forehead. In hindsight, she probably didn't look quite as we'd imagined a necromancer might look, but at the time, we saw all sorts of foreboding in the thundering hooves of her tall black horse, the noiseless sweep of her gown and the glow of her eyes. I remember how white her hands were, slipping out of her jewelled gloves. It was a strange sort of imprisonment for treasonable necromancy, we had to admit to ourselves. Queen Joan had plenty of luxury and an allowance. She came with her own clerk, Thomas Lilburn, who we tried in vain to get to gossip with us, but he was as tight-lipped as a priest. She had her own household of 19 grooms and seven pages, which was great news for all of us maids, I can tell you, and so can the man who's now my husband, who arrived with her that day. The extravagances kept coming while she was settling into the castle. Chests of fine clothes of silk and linen and more bolts of cloth and metres of grey squirrel fur to trim capes. Three dozen pairs of shoes, golden girdles and silver buckles, medicines and a personal physician from Portugal to prescribe them. Our eyes widened as we saw the parade of things carried in. Books more than we'd ever seen. A gilded harp and a popinjay in a birdcage which shrieked loud enough to wake the dead. Rose water, cinnamon, an aquavitae, a pot of green ginger lying on its own bed of straw like a wealthy invalid. All of this bustle meant that we almost forgot the dark rumours about her, but that was when strange things started to happen around the castle, or so it seemed. I doubt my memory now, but it was real enough to me then. There were noises in silent rooms, you see and sudden blasts of cold air when you walked down a passage alone. Once I thought somebody pushed me hard in the small of my back, but when I turned around there was nobody there. We heard footsteps, heavy and determined, crossing the gallery above our heads, but when John and Roger ran up there with the fire irons and shouted to whoever it was to stop in the name of the king, the room was empty. People started to hear the scrabbling claws of a dog skittering on the flagstones after dark, and soon after, we started to see it. It was a monstrous black hound, long in the back, with a collar of gold and rubies the same red as its flashing eyes. I never saw it myself, but plenty of people did. Sightings of the beast were terrible luck, because Nell from the still room saw it, and she got an awful toothache right after it, so we knew it must be something sent from the realms of the devil. After that, we all looked away or closed our eyes tight whenever we heard the dog's paws or its hungry, panting breaths. The worst of all was when I woke up in a cold sweat after a dream of buried skeletons forcing their way up through the orchard soil, one earth-encrusted finger bone at a time, and limping and rattling slowly but surely towards the castle. 
When I looked down from the window, I could see the queen in their midst, her white hands raised and the dead bones ready to do her bidding. Now I was lucky for a good long while and never had to go into her chamber alone, but one evening I certainly drew the short straw and there was no going back from it. I had to go in there and as the others said, my turn was long past due. I was shaking and my back was clammy with sweat as I knocked softly on the door and went in. Night had just fallen, one of those autumn nights which comes down all of a sudden. The chamber was dark, lit only by a few candles. The first I saw of the Queen was the reflection of her face, white in the glass of the window and floating like a haunted moon. The waves in the glass made her eyes look black and bottomless. She was sitting, staring out, and she was surrounded by silver and gold and things in bottles. Though they might have been cosmetics, they looked unearthly to me, like the concoctions of a witch. I fumbled my way to the fireplace and started to build up the fire, not liking to turn my back on her, but not having any other choice. She was behind me in a trice, and I swear to this day I never heard her move. Her skirt had made no sound, for there were thick rugs on the floor, and her stillness and poise stays with me now, because it was so unnatural. I was used to people with constantly busy hands, fidgeting, working, scratching themselves, The queen was like a statue over a tomb. I'm not ashamed to say that I dropped one of the logs loudly on the hearth. I know what they're saying about me, she said. Her voice was low with a slight French accent. But it's all nonsense, you know. There's no need to be afraid. I thought that there was every need to be afraid, what with a demonic hound giving people toothache and the invisible people walking about the castle and the dreams of clanking bones. If I could raise spirits, the Queen continued, the only one I'd raise up would be my husband, for I miss him sorely, and my heart yearns to see him again. Well, I finished making up the fire and I got out of there swiftly, but I thought about what she'd said and I started to feel a bit sorry for her after that. I certainly wasn't so quick to listen when the others prattled about the black dog having given them a pimple or a swollen stomach. In fact, I started thinking that the Queen was probably all right, and I never minded going in to serve her after that until one night. I was bringing her a jug of Rhenish wine, which was her favourite. As I approached her chamber door, I could hear voices within, and as I got closer, I could especially hear her voice but the door was so thick that I couldn't actually make out what she was saying. Now, the door didn't fit very well in its frame, and there was a gap underneath it, and I was as little able to control my curiosity back then as I am now. So I bent down and had a look under the door. I couldn't see much, only that there were two shadows on the floor. That was a bit disappointing, so I straightened up and squinted through the keyhole instead. I could see the Queen... And by the heavy curtain, there was the very dark, shadowy shape of a tall, gaunt man with strange, old-fashioned hair. Then I heard a scratching and a skittering, like a dog's claws, but no dog did I see. Only a dark, massy shape near the man's feet. Well, she never got her wine that night. I had it myself, sitting on the stairs to calm my shaking hands and shattered nerves. Eventually... The king pardoned her and released her from Leeds Castle, and things went back to normal. I wasn't at the castle much longer myself, and one of Queen Joan's 19 grooms certainly didn't follow her to her next residence, for he's even now sitting by the fire with his feet up snoring. But my niece, who works at the castle now, says they still hear the dog around sometimes, so that must have lingered. The years have passed, and Queen Joan's spirit lies quiet now. They built her a fine tomb in Canterbury Cathedral. I had a shock when I went to see it, for there, lying next to her, was the late King Henry. King Henry IV, that was. But it was the man from her chamber that night, with the funny hair and everything. And there, at their feet, sleeping with them, was a dog. I felt a bit dizzy, so I stepped away for a moment. But when I looked back, there was an expression on the face of the effigy of Queen Joan, which I was sure hadn't been there before. She was smiling.
Somerset is a county rich with witch stories. There are dozens. So many it can be hard to choose whose story to tell. For example, there's Marianne Bull, who people knew as Nan, a healer and wise woman who roamed West Somerset in a wagon during the 19th century. It's said Nan Bull sold goods from her cart, which was also her home, venturing as far as wool in Dorset to hawk her cures and curses. That was until the townsfolk of Crewkern turned against her. Like so many witches, she was buried at a crossroads in a spot now known as Bull's Grave. Then there's Mother Shipton. Born in 1472 in Knaresborough, she lived and died in Porlock and was famous for knowing when storms were coming, essentially in a fishing community. It's said Mother Shipton could forecast the tides and predict squalls with such regularity that she didn't so much read the weather as control it. Of all the witches of Somerset, though, perhaps the most interesting is the story of Joan Kahn, the restless witch of Sand Hill. She died in 1612, famous for having murdered her three husbands. The truth of her story is a little more complex, though, as is so often the way. Born in Dunster, just a short walk from Minehead, Joan seemed to spring from nowhere. A great beauty, the first record of her existence was her marriage to John Newton. The Newton family had owned Sand Hill Farm since 1427, and Sand Hill Manor Farm stands on the same spot to this day. In 2023, Sandhill Manor sits in 250 acres of wood and farmland. It has its own freshwater spring, manicured gardens with an ornamental lake, stables, and over a hundred horses. You can rent part of it as a holiday home, but back in the time of Queen Elizabeth I, the house and its grounds were more modest, even if their owner, John Newton, was in the prime of his life. The day John met Joan, the unmarried lord, was out riding. A perennial bachelor, he prided himself on his work. He'd grown his father's estate, turning it from a run-down, if beloved, semi-wilderness into a profitable, tidy, happy farm. That afternoon, though, as John ventured through his thriving empire, he caught sight of a shape scrumping apples from his orchard. He only caught a glimpse of her, a face through the trees and a swish of skirts. Then, the next thing he knew, she was gone, vanished from sight. John rode up to the walls of the orchard, dismounted, searched desperately between the trees with his heart in his throat. The only traces of life he could see, besides the trees and insects, his horse and himself, was a pale brown hare running off into a nearby copse. As the days wore on, John could not put the vision of the woman from his mind. He couldn't eat, couldn't sleep, and would talk of little else. Her face, her shape, that flash of skirt haunted him. So it was that John Newton pursued Joan, not the other way around. As days turned into weeks, John made more and more inquiries. He rode west to Old Cleve, north to Cleve Bay, and east to Carhampton, the nearest village which sits beneath the shadow of Bat's Castle. Everywhere he went, he described the woman he'd seen. Though some faces flashed with recognition, nobody wanted to tell the young landowner anything about the person he was seeking. The best he got was a nod in the direction of Rod Hewish Common, a wilderness surrounding the ruins of an Iron Age hill fort. So, that was the way John Newton rode, scouring the hills of the common, combing through them day after day. 
The people of Sandhill started to fear for the health of their patron. Little did they expect John to one day ride home with Joan on the back of his horse, lured by a promise to make her his wife. All this time, you see, Joan had been living in a hovel out in the wilds, nestled in a space between two scrubby hills. When John Newton rode down into Joan's glade, she had fear in her eyes and thought once again to flee, yet Joan recognised the man and, being a decent sort, offered him a little payment for the apples she'd stolen from his orchard. When he refused her paltry collection of coins, she thought that would be that. But instead, John asked her for a different form of payment. His price? No more than a conversation. It was during this chat that John learned of Joan's sad history. How once, when she was barely more than a girl, she'd met a man from Blackdown who told her He'd stolen a golden mug from a fairy fair, after which the fairies had caught up with him and exacted their revenge. The man had been tricked, bewitched, and became pixie-led, unable to think for himself. The traveller told Joan that he'd been led from town to town by the malevolent elfin folk. They'd spat in his eyes, giving him pixie sight, helping him to see the world as they saw it. Then, for years, they kept him with them, using him to carry their goods from forest to vale to beach and back again. The only way he'd escaped, the man told Joan, was one day he'd put his coat on backwards, sleeves the wrong way out. It had only been an accident, he said, but the moment it happened he felt himself freed, so he ran off and escaped to live the rest of his life in leisure. The way Joan told it, ever since that day, the man she met had enjoyed great luck. He could win at dice, dance the finest of jigs to any old tune, and, with just a look, any girl would fall in love with him. Which was just what happened to Joan, who the man led off on a merry jaunt that lasted through spring, summer, and until the leaves started to turn. As the seasons passed, Joan said, and her love blossomed and bloomed, she convinced the man to show her the world as he could see it. So it was that he spat in Joan's right eye, and from that day forth, Joan could half see the world of the fairies and their pixie mischiefs. Their footsteps in the dew, their language in the spider webs, the future written in an apple cut clean through. Joan and her swain lived a life of mirth in those days. But as the west wind turned and winter came knocking, Joan came forth with news. She was pregnant, she told her lover, no doubt about it, and wasn't that a wonderful thing? Alas, in response to Joan's admission, the swain did what swains are wont to do, albeit with a twist. For not content with just running away, the man turned himself into a hare, shooting off into the undergrowth, and Joan didn't know how to follow him. Times were hard then for Joan, for although she could see part of the hidden world, had hedge wisdom and might earn herself coppers for telling fortunes, she didn't have the luck her lover had boasted. Before long she found herself all but penniless. Moreover, when the baby came, she found her son proved not to be a normal sort of child. He was a half fae baby, or a part fae at very least. Everything Joan tried to feed him only made him sick, and the harder she worked to heal him, the sicker the boy became. It was then that, one night, there was a rap at Joan's door. She opened it, her heart swelling with hope that her errant lover had returned. Instead, it was the fairies come to take her son to live a secret life as their kind always ought. Joan refused, of course. 
But the fairies wouldn't take no for an answer. They spat in her face and forced their way inside, gathering the boy up in his swaddling clothes. Joan had known what to do. Quick as a flash, she turned her skirts inside out, freeing herself from being pixie-led. But it was still too late, for out of the windows, up the chimneys, the fairies vanished, spiriting her son away. And their curse was twofold, for although, like her lover before her, she'd now accrued new knowledge and could turn herself into a hare when panicked and had luck at dice and could dance the finest of jigs to any old tune, it seemed that from then on, whatever good things she touched, she tainted, marking it with fairy charms. John Newton listened to this story and felt for Joan, loved and stolen from and left alone. Moreover, like most important people, he did not believe in curses. So, despite Joan's warnings and after much begging and pleading, he convinced her to make him the happiest man in the world by marrying him and becoming his wife. Trouble was, just as sure as eggs is eggs, it didn't take long before John Newton fell ill. Like a true lady of her time, it was only after the wedding bells rang that Joan agreed to offer John a first embrace, but even that first kiss, sweet as it was, was laced with poison. Joan begged John not to, but he wouldn't hear otherwise, and morning, noon and night, he kissed his wife. He had her cook his meals and prepare him medicines, yet everything she made for him only made him sicker. She pleaded with him to call on others to help, a doctor from Taunton perhaps, and beseeched him to visit the priests at Exeter or Glastonbury, but John wouldn't hear of it. He only wanted to stay home at Sand Hill with Joan, his one true love, for there he might die happy. Which is what he did, of course. And people were sad. Not least John's workers, who were suddenly afraid, for John had died without issue, meaning their futures had all become abruptly uncertain. Most afraid was Joan, of course, who in a short time had grown to love Sandhill just as she had loved the man who'd made it a success. Indeed, with Joan's fairy sight, she could sometimes still see John Newton wandering the house by night. Though she went to the funeral and put his body in the ground, she knew in her heart that while John might be dead, he wasn't really gone. It was at that very funeral, though, that Joan was seen by all the great and good of Somerset. Many of them had heard of John Newton's sudden wedding, and curious to meet his widow, all the major families attended, the Hickses, the Hastings, the Clarks, the Pophams, and notably, the Wyndhams. Indeed, all the men who caught sight of Joan seemed to covet her. Most of those men at John Newton's funeral, well, they were already husbands. One who was not, and who fell in love no sooner than he'd seen the hem of Joan's mourning clothes, was Charles Wyndham, heir to Orchard Manor in Watchet. The kindly John Popham, who inherited Sand Hill, was sufficiently enamoured with Joan that he agreed to give the conveyance in fee to the estate to whoever the pretty widow married next. And though Joan begged and pleaded with Charles, warning him off as she'd warned off John, telling him of her past and imploring him to leave her be, Charles Wyndham wouldn't hear of it. He married her. Though in jealousy towards John Newton's ghost, he knocked down the old farmhouse and commissioned a new, grander building to be erected in its place. Joan was bereft at the destruction of the old Sandhill farmhouse, mourning John Newton's loss all over again. 
And although Charles Wyndham was a jealous man who took her away from the home she'd only just come to feel she belonged in, he loved and craved and showered Joan with kindnesses, just as her first husband had. Just like him too, in spite of Joan's begging and pleading, Charles sought her kisses, morning, noon and night, made her cook his meals, pour his wine, and when Charles fell ill, he had Joan prepare his medicines. Duly, she sat by his bedside at Orchard Manor and watched him as he wasted away, powerless to convince him to seek succour from anyone but None of this was lost on the great and good of Somerset, of course. The Hickses, the Hastings, the Clarks, and even the Poppins spoke whisperingly of Joan, of her great beauty, of her bewitching powers, and of her strangely intoxicating influence. The rumours spread through court, a little tittle-tattle to most, but for Sir Edward Carne of Uwenny in South Wales, the talk of Joan made him prick up his ears. For Sir Edward, you see, was a widower. Not only was he a widower, in fact, but his first wife, mother of his son and heir, John Kahn, had once been Catherine Wyndham, Charles's sister. And Sir Edward was a tricky character. His father had been Queen Mary's ambassador in Rome. His entire family had refused to convert to Protestantism. In 1574, Edward had even allied himself with Mary, Queen of Scots, and he and his men had led several frays into neighbouring Welsh lands, rebelling and seeking to enforce feudal rights. In short, Edward Kahn was not the sort of man who believed in curses, but he did believe in money. He knew that if Charles Wyndham died, as all who knew him supposed he would, then by marrying Joan he could secure increased wealth, power and a grander title even than Sheriff of Glamorgan. Alas for Charles Wyndham, of course, who never got to see Sandhill Manor completed. He died happily, though, shortly before the final bricks were laid in 1588, with his will of 1585 specifying that Joan should be able to live in the house until her death, after which the estate should pass to his godson. Joan, of course, was heartbroken all over again. Alone again, grief-stricken, given an unfamiliar house in a familiar place where the ghosts of her past husbands seemed to shimmer and shake in and out of existence. She wondered if somehow she might untangle the mystery of their afterlives and thought to perhaps appeal to the fairy folk for aid. Before she had much time to follow up on such plans, though, Edward came calling and refused to take no for an answer. So it was that before long, Joan Newton, who had become Joan Wyndham, became Joan Kahn. Though Sir Edward considered himself cannier than his precedents, he listened to Joan's words, took them to heart, and after moving Joan to Ueni, he at first managed to keep his life and hers almost completely separate. Yet, like Charles before him and John before that, and try as he might, Edward could not keep Joan from his thoughts. He dreamed of her, glimpsed her reflection in every puddle, mirror and window pane. As weeks turned into months and months turned into years, he at first craved sight of her, then to brush her lips against his. And suddenly, Sir Edward Kahn was just as infatuated with his Joan as her two prior husbands had been. He could not bear to be parted from her, hung on her every word, and soon demanded that only Joan prepare his meals, only Joan pour his wine, and, as he became more and more ill, that only Joan tend to his sickness. 
Edward Kahn's will, dated 20th of October 1602, was proved on the 27th of May 1603, and Joan returned to Sandhill Manor, where she lived until her death in 1612. It's said that in the final years of her life, Joan Kahn became a recluse. She covered herself from head to toe in black cloth, fearful of letting anyone see her, though many still came seeking prophecies and advice. Often the auguries Joan gave her visitors were not what they wanted to hear, and by the time she died, the people of Withycombe were most pleased to learn she passed on. Indeed, by then they had come to fear her, creating a special iron coffin in which to bury her, barring it to the ground deep in Watchet churchyard. One of the things the people of Withycombe wanted to know, though, was how much money Joan was leaving behind, and to whom. The great and the good were just as curious as the folk who'd worked Sandhill Farm during John Newton's heyday, so one and all a crowd of inquisitive mourners travelled back to Sandhill Manor House to hear the will being read. It was of great surprise to all in attendance when they opened the doors to the grand Elizabethan house to find within it none other than Joan Kahn. She was in the kitchen, dressed in black, cooking eggs and bacon, presumably enough to share with her three dead husbands. The priest was sent for, exorcising Joan's ghost, which, true to form, turned into a hare and made an escape. What followed was a scramble, a hunt across hill and vale, with Joan's spirit eventually driven to a body of water known to this day as the witch's pool. It's said that the priest, whose name is lost to antiquity, sealed Joan there by blessing the pool, turning it to holy water. It's also said that Joan Kahn's ghost can only return to Sandhill by one cockerel's stride a year. Measurements of the precise distance between Withycombe's witch pool and Sandhill Manor House vary somewhat. But by most estimates, it's imagined that Joan Kahn, the restless witch of Sandhill, ought to be home by now. Judging by the additional exorcisms that took place at the manor during the last century, there's every chance she's already there. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Always give a witch what she asks, unless you can think of a way to trick her instead. There was once a witch in Blidworth who was as house-proud as a new bride. Her cottage was always kept spotlessly clean and tidy, with the magic books stacked neatly, bundles of fresh herbs scenting the air, and the copper cauldrons shining like the morning sun. Her pride and joy was her collection of fine china, which was displayed complacently on a broad dresser. This witch's name was Cecily Cuthbert, and she liked everything around her to be pleasant. That was how she'd become a witch in the first place, in fact. She'd grown up in poverty until the devil in the form of a hare had appeared to her and her mother and sister and persuaded them to join his cause in exchange for a seven-course dinner with wine pairings. That first dinner had awakened a hungry fiend in Cecily Cuthbert, and from that moment on she just couldn't get enough of cinnamon sweetmeats, juicy chicken legs and lashings of butter and cheese. Her cheeks were as round as apples, and her skin was smooth and pink from all the eating and fine living. Despite her love of the most luxurious food, 
Cecily Cuthbert didn't like to pay for it. After all, she'd already paid the devil with her soul, so she thought she shouldn't have to pay for anything at all after that. Everything she owned, from her soft leather boots to her geranium-scented hair oil, she'd acquired by other means. In fact, the saying in those parts that you should always give a witch what she asks originated with Cecily. She had only ever had to do one piece of real magic in Blibworth, but it was enough for word to get around. One day, she'd been about to board the cart bound for Nottingham, and she fancied some of the carrier's pipe tobacco to smoke herself, so she asked him for a pinch. But the carrier refused and told Cecily Cuthbert that she should buy her own tobacco as he had done. So she never rode the cart that day, but she fixed the horses with a fierce stare, and then they wouldn't move. They stood stock still, rooted to the spot, and after nightfall the carrier knocked at Cecily Cuthbert's door with a great pouch of tobacco. From that day on, people always gave her what she asked for. Now, I should tell you that Cecily Cuthbert had a familiar spirit to help her in her enchantments, a hobgoblin from the devil's own breeding grounds. It looked like a cat to the eyes of others, and it fed from a mole on Cecily's left arm and was known as Rutterkin. It was just as well that Cecily had a familiar to remind her of things, for she was very forgetful. Now one day, Cecily put on her new-heeled boots and tallest sugarloaf hat and hung her willow basket over her arm and rode the cart into Nottingham to do some shopping. She didn't shop as you or I do, for she never paid for anything, and more often than not, she didn't remember the things she'd really needed but came back with lavender soap instead of eggs or gingerbread instead of ribbons. Rutigan twined about her ankles, trying to remind her that she needed oil, bread and potatoes she hardly listened. Nottingham was a fine place to spend a morning wandering around the shops and stalls in those days, and Cecily's basket was filling up nicely with pieces of lace, sticky currant buns and other good things. But by midday, she had a powerful thirst and a craving for something sweet. She could almost taste the sugar in her watering mouth as she imagined biting into a delicious pudding. She was thinking about calling into an inn for some lunch when she heard a thin cry from a deserted alley. Who'll buy my buttermilk? Something that you may not know is that witches are excessively fond of buttermilk and no witch was ever fonder than Cecily Cuthbert. So she followed the sound of the voice down the dark little alleyway until she saw a small skinny boy holding a pail of delicious frothy buttermilk. This boy's name was Little Jack, and he was the only son of a poor widow. They only had one cow to their name, and it was their whole fortune, that cow. Every day, the widow milked the cow and made fresh cheese and butter to store ready for sale at the great Nottingham Goose Fair, while Jack took to the streets of Nottingham to sell the buttermilk. His prices were reasonable, and he would pour a generous helping of buttermilk into your jug for just a few pennies. But that meant nothing to Cecily Cuthbert. She went up to Little Jack as bold as brass and asked him for the milk. Little Jack didn't like the look of the crow's feather stuck jauntily into Cecily Cuthbert's hat, or the way mud didn't seem to stick to her grass-green petticoat, but he clutched his pail tight in his trembling hands and told her that he and his mother were poor and couldn't afford to give the milk away for free. Cecily Cuthbert was astonished for nobody had ever refused her since the trick she'd pulled with the carrier's horses. She was hot and thirsty, and the sweet creamy milk in the pail was calling to her. "'You'd better hand it over,' she said crossly to little Jack, "'or I'll put you in my sack and take you home with me, and then I'll eat you for supper instead.' Cecily always carried a sack when she went shopping, in case any of the kind townsfolk wanted to make her a particularly large present. But little Jack put up his chin and refused to give her the milk. So Cecily Cuthbert took out her sack, grabbed hold of Jack and stuffed him inside it, along with his churn and pail. How delicious he would be baked in a pie, she thought, with a flagon of lovely buttermilk to wash him down. It was a fine day, so Cecily thought she'd walk back to Blidworth. 
Besides, she could work up an appetite for eating little Jack. But a little way out of town, she started thinking about Rutterkin's reminders to bring back certain things. What could they have been? One had been potatoes, she was sure of it. Could she manage without them? Oh, perhaps, but wouldn't a pie filled with little boy taste better with some nice mashed potatoes on the side? Cecily determined that she must have those potatoes. Ahead, she saw a pair of fellows cutting a thorn bush, so she asked them if they would mind the sack for her while she just popped back into Nottingham. The men agreed, and off Cecily went. But as soon as she'd gone, Jack started wriggling and kicking and making a noise in the sack, so much that the hedge cutters opened the top of it to see what all the fuss was about. They were all for leaving well alone, for they'd recognised Cecily and knew it would be a bad idea to get on the wrong side of her. But little Jack gave them all a free drink of buttermilk, and they agreed to let him go. The sack was a bit flat without Jack in it, so he picked up some of the thorny hedge cuttings and stuffed them in instead. The hedge cutters watched doubtfully, but little Jack gave them some more buttermilk, and they promised not to say a word. When Cecily returned with the potatoes, she thanked the hedge cutters and went on her way with the sack slung over her shoulder. But the thorns from the hedge cuttings poked through the sack and stuck into her back so that she thought Jack was pinching her. It was a long way home with the thorns pricking her and Cecily angrily calling out to the supposed little Jack to keep his fingers to himself. When she got back, Rutterkin rubbed up against her ankles and asked her if she had remembered the potatoes, oil and bread. Oil and bread went out of my head, said Cecily, but potatoes I have, and something better. She shook out the sack with a flourish, expecting to be able to show off the basis of a scrumptious dinner. But all that scattered onto her clean floor was a bundle of thorny clippings. Rutterkin yowled and hissed, and Cecily said some words which were never found in Dr. Johnson's dictionary. There was no pie and mashed potatoes for dinner, but instead the witch and the cat sat sadly eating currant buns and planning revenge on little Jack. The next day, Cecily put on her sugarloaf hat again and trotted back off to Nottingham. Rutterkin cautioned her to remember the oil and bread this time, but most importantly to capture that slippery little Jack. Jack thought that he'd got clean away from her, so thought nothing about selling his buttermilk in the same streets as usual. Imagine his surprise when Cecily Cuthbert's shadow in its pointed hat fell across the end of the alleyway. She didn't wait to ask him for his buttermilk, but stuffed him straight inside the sack, churn and pail and all. Cecily marched straight out of the town gates and past the thorny bushes, giving the hedge cutters a fearsome look which made one turn pale and the other have to sit down suddenly. But she hadn't got a little bit of the way back to Blidworth when she started thinking about Rutterkin's reminders. What could they have been? One had been bread, she was certain. Could she manage without it? Perhaps, but wouldn't the gravy she'd make from Little Jack's bones taste better with some fresh springy bread to mop it up? Just up ahead she saw a couple of stone cutters mending the potholes in the road, so she asked them if they would mind the sack for her while she just popped back into Nottingham. The stone cutters agreed, and off Cecily went. I hardly need tell you that just the same thing happened. The stone cutters had their buttermilk, Jack got clean away, and Cecily Cuthbert walked back to Blidworth with the heavy stones in the sack banging against her back, thinking little Jack was kicking her. Rutterkin jumped down from the dresser and asked her if she'd remembered the bread and oil. Oil will not have for the boil, said Cecily, but bread I have, and something better. Well, she shook out the sack, but all that thundered onto the floor was a pile of clattering stones. Rutterkin spat and screeched, and Cecily kicked a chair leg in an unusual show of pique. There was no roast boy and fluffy bread for dinner and the witch and the cat went to bed with a wheel of Colton Bassett Stilton and plotted their revenge on little Jack. The next day, 
Cecily laced up her boots with renewed determination and set off for Nottingham Town. Rattikin reminded her thrice times nine about the oil, but most especially to let nothing distract her in bringing back Jack. Little Jack had wisely gone to sell his buttermilk in a different street, so it took Cecily half the morning to find him, and when she did she was good and hungry and ready to take a slice out of him then and there. But she was as good as her word to her familiar and went straight back home, passing the hedge-cutters and the stone-cutters with her nose in the air. When she got back, she put the sack down on the floor in front of Rattikin and shook it hard to check that Jack was still inside it. "'What about the oil?' said Rattikin. Now, Cecily was all for managing without the oil, now she'd actually got Jack home, but wouldn't his flesh taste better if she lightly sealed the meat in a pan first? This time... Cecily put Rutterkin in her basket to make quite sure she wouldn't forget, and she shut up the cottage windows and locked the door and tied the neck of the sack as tightly as she could so that Jack wouldn't escape. As soon as he was alone, Jack started to wriggle and jiggle inside the sack. He fairly well danced a nine men's Morris in there, until the rope around the sack loosened enough for him to worm his way out. He was surprised to see how clean and tastefully decorated the witch's cottage was, but it gave him an idea to teach her a lesson she wouldn't forget. He took all of her fine china plates and delicate teacups from the dresser where they were displayed and put them into the sack. Then he retied the rope around the sack's neck. Although the doors and windows were locked, it was lucky for Jack that forgetful Cecily Cuthbert hadn't remembered to light her fire, so he could climb up the chimney with his buttermilk churn and pail and run back home to his mother. Some little while later, Cecily and Rutterkin returned in triumph with a large flagon of oil and lots of other nice things too, which the kind folk of Nottingham had been practically begging them to take. They were ready to cook a wonderful dinner and drink up every last drop of Little Jack's buttermilk. Quick as a flash, Cecily upended the sack and shook it out, but all that fell out was her beautiful collection of china, and every last bit of it smashed to smithereens on her polished flagstone floor. Cecily Cuthbert howled in rage and vowed that this time she would put a curse on Little Jack, which would last for seven generations. But Jack wisely moved his buttermilk operations to Mansfield, and after a few days of prowling the streets of Nottingham in search of her foe, Cecily forgot all about him too. And so my tale is told, and now it belongs to you. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks and such lean man With a down, dairy, dairy, dairy